31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. I hope you have a copy of God's Word and that you're turning there. And as you do, let's listen together to what the Scriptures tell us this morning. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to the rich man, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, it is a weighty responsibility to open your word and to consider what it is that you have revealed concerning who you are and who we are and who Christ is. It's especially weighty, Father, when the passage opened before us so clearly presents to us the eternal stakes that come in hearing the word of God. So we would be remiss, Father, and less than humble if we did not ask you for help this morning, that we would hear the word of God as we ought, with humility, with obedience, with faith, with repentance. Help us, God. Lord, I pray that you would keep me from error. I pray, Lord, that there would be a godly sense of sober-mindedness that takes root in our lives as we consider the truth of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we all know the phrase, looks can be deceiving. It's a wise expression that cautions us against assuming too much based on outward appearances. Looks can be deceiving. It's a fitting summary for our passage this morning. When you read this parable from Jesus, one of the first things that strikes you is that looks can be deceiving. 
The parable presents us with two men. And based on the look of things, one man appears head and shoulders above the other man. The rich man, as Jesus calls him, appears to be in a much better state than Lazarus. The rich man is comfortable while Lazarus suffers. The rich man has all he needs while Lazarus can't even escape the wild dogs on the street. The rich man looks to be very well off. While you might assume that Lazarus's poverty indicates he's lived a life of making bad decisions. But that's where our well-known phrase comes in. Despite his appearance, the rich man is actually very poor. True, he is rich in earthly possessions, but the rest of the parable tells us that this man is poor towards God. Looks can be deceiving. And that's not all we should say about the rich man in Jesus' parable. Not only is he spiritually poor, but he's also a fool. He's a fool. He's devoted his entire life to the accumulation of things while spending no time at all thinking about eternity. Friends, that's a good definition of foolishness. And I hope that it I hope what stands out to you this morning about this rich man is that while he looks rich, he's actually poor. And he's poor because he's devoted his life to foolishness. Before we go any further in the parable, we ought to note where it falls in Luke's Gospel. Look back to verse 14 there in your copy of God's Word where you find the thread that ties this parable to the rest of the chapter. Notice how Jesus describes the Pharisees, verse 14, they are lovers of money, Jesus says. In other words, when it comes to the parables, looks can be deceiving. They appear devout. They appear committed to the things of God. But inwardly, the reality of their lives is much different. Inwardly, they love the things of this world. They don't love God. And that's the thread that ties this text to the rest of the chapter. That's the connection here. The rich man in this parable is a rebuke to the Pharisees. They fancy themselves as rich and comfortable, but inwardly they are spiritually poor. They're fools. The parable is a warning to them to recognize the foolishness of living for earthly things. And that's also the challenge of this passage for us as we listen to it. Remember, anytime we come to the Scriptures, whether it's on the Lord's Day or Wednesday morning, anytime we come to the Scriptures, we ought to humble ourselves and consider how God's Word is aiming to correct us and conform our lives to Christ. To say it a different way, the quickest way to misunderstand this passage is to assume that Jesus is not talking to you. He is. And we ought to be open this morning to being corrected, to seeing how there are aspects of foolishness in our lives that call us to confession and repentance. It's a rebuke to the Pharisees, and friends, it's also a word to us. So with that kind of humility in our hearts, I want us to consider three marks of foolishness from this rich man who was actually poor. Three marks of foolishness, and we'll let the negative example be instructive for us today. The first mark comes in verses 19 to 23. It is foolish to live only for this life. It is foolish to live only for this life. 
We've already noted how the two men in the parable could not be more different. Their earthly lives are a study in contrasts. Notice the detailed picture Jesus paints, beginning in verse 19. Everything about the rich man's life proclaims comfort and ease. He is clothed in purple like a king. He feasts every day, which would have been exceedingly rare in Jesus' age. And he lives in a house so large that it has a gate, Jesus tells us in verse 20. That's more than a front door. It's the gate to a mansion, to a compound. So we get the picture from Jesus' description, don't we? When Jesus says rich man, he means royally rich, ensconced in comfort and feasting every day in ease. Lazarus, by contrast, is utterly miserable and destitute. Notice the equally graphic description of his poverty, verse 20. Lazarus appears to be crippled as he has to be laid at the gate each day. He can't get himself there. Lazarus is covered in sores, probably open wounds. Lazarus is starving, verse 21. He would be content with just the crumbs from the rich man's table. And Lazarus is unclean. I don't mean physically unclean, though that would have been true. I mean in the religious sense. Dogs lick his wounds, verse 21. That's pathetic. But it also makes Lazarus ceremonially unclean according to the law of Moses. And yet, that's how destitute Lazarus is. He can't even keep the dogs off of him in the street. So once again, we get the picture, don't we? The rich man feasts, Lazarus starves. The rich man is robed in royalty. Lazarus is clothed in misery. The rich, the rich man west, uh, rests comfortably, waited upon by servants. Lazarus lies helplessly, surrounded by dogs. The earthly lives of these two men could not be more different. And based on the appearance of things, you would expect the rich man has been wise and Lazarus has probably been a fool. And you would be wrong. Because looks can be deceiving. In fact, there are a couple of indications, even in this description, that clue us into the fact that there's more to this story than what we might think. The first is Lazarus's location. Look again at verse 20 and notice where Lazarus is laid every day. At the rich man's gate. Try to picture that, friends. A magnificent mansion and there lying at the gate is this miserable man surrounded by dogs. Do you think you would notice Lazarus lying there outside? Do you think that you would see him? Well, of course you would see him. How could you not see him? He's outside your house, surrounded by animals. He's literally on your doorstep. But does the rich man do anything? No, he doesn't do anything. Make no mistake, friends, the rich man sees Lazarus. Later in the parable, we'll hear him use Lazarus' name so that he knows the poor man is there, lying out front. But the rich man doesn't do anything to love his neighbor. That's the first indication that looks can be deceiving. The second indication that there's something more here is Lazarus' name. His name. Daryl Bach, in his very fine commentary on Luke, points out that Lazarus' name is the shortened form of the name Eleazar, which means God helps. God helps. So the rich man ignores Lazarus, but God doesn't. Lazarus, Eleazar, this man who appears so helpless will soon find that God 
is his help. So there's another indication in the description that looks can be deceiving that there's more to this story than what we might think. And as we come to verse 22, we find that that is true. We find that Lazarus' name is preaching to us. Both rich and poor alike die in verse 22, which that alone should get your attention. Everyone faces death. doesn't matter what the number in your bank account is. Everyone dies. And in Jesus' parable, death brings about a great reversal. Lazarus, as his name indicates, finds that God is his help. Verse 22, Lazarus is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Please don't miss that stunning reversal, friends. Jesus is a master of parables. And this is one of His finest parables. The man who was licked by dogs in this life is carried by angels into the next. It's a magnificent reversal from Jesus. The man who lived on the streets now finds himself living in paradise with Abraham, the father of God's people and the man of faith. Everything about Lazarus' life is overturned. And his misery, which was so complete, is exchanged for eternal blessing. It's upside down. Same is true, though, for the rich man. But his reversal is tragic. This is where the foolishness starts to come in. Notice the rich man's reversal, verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Friends, Hades is the place of the dead in the Bible. And in Hades, the rich man experiences the judgment of God. Why is the rich man in torment? Is it because he was rich? Is it that God is opposed to the wealthy? No, that's not the answer. The parable is not telling us how you get to heaven or hell. And we should be careful not to overinterpret some of those details. Rather, the rich man is in torment because that is the fruit of his life. What's the sum of God's law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The rich man did not love God. How do you know that? Because he didn't love his neighbor as himself. That's how you know. The rich man spent his life utterly disregarding the Word of God. He spurned God's commandments in order to serve himself. Friends, that's why Jesus tells you that Lazarus was lying at his front gate. The rich man knew Lazarus. He saw him. And yet he did nothing to love his neighbor as himself. That's why the rich man is in Hades suffering torment. He does not believe God's Word. He does not honor God's command. He does not hope in God's promises. He does not love God's people. He does not love God. The rich man lived only for himself. Every day he thought up and he got up and thought, "What can I do for me?" He only loved himself, and that's why he's a fool. That's why he's in Hades. He lived only for himself. So before we move on, I want to make just one observation here. This may seem to you a rather simple observation, but I'm a simple pastor, and so I just I'm compelled to say this because I don't know who all is here today. The observation is this. There is life after death. There is life after death. And that reality ought to shape how you live today and tomorrow and every other day. 
It is utterly foolish to live as though this earthly life is all that you get. There is eternity after death. And you, you personally, you will exist in eternity in one state or another. Are you living today with eternity in view? Are you prioritizing the things that God values? The things that God exalts? They're often right in front of your face. Like Lazarus was with the rich man. Are you pursuing the things that God values? Things like serving your neighbor, loving your family, telling the truth, working hard, building up the church. Or, like the rich man, are you being desensitized to eternal things by the constant fleeting comfort of earthly pleasure? Listen, that's the really important point in this passage about money, about riches, about wealth. God isn't opposed to money per se, but God is clear about the effect that money can have on the human heart. What effect is that, preacher? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has set eternity in the human heart. God has made each and every one of us, by His common grace, being made in His image, He's given us a sense of eternity in our hearts. Chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But money is like a spiritual anesthetic that numbs your heart to that God-given sense of eternity. And living where we do in our culture, which I would rather live here than another culture. I'm not on some kind of anti-West crusade. But living here in this culture is like living in Disneyland every day. And if we're not aware of that, it numbs our hearts to the fact that we're going to die, and after you die, you're going to see God. Does that shape how you live today? Which age are you living for? Which age grips you when you wake up every day? Friends, I'll tell you what, tomorrow grips me when I wake up. That's why we need passages like this. Sober us. Wake us up. And help overturn the effects of that spiritual anesthetic that is comfort. Which age are you living for? This age or the age to come that will never end? That's mark number one of foolishness from the rich man who was actually poor. It's foolish to live only for this life. The second mark of foolishness continues in the same vein, but there's a different emphasis. From verses 24 to 26, we see that it is foolish to think you can bargain with God. It's foolish to think that you can bargain with God. Lazarus fades into the background at this point, and the rich man is in clear focus. In fact, did you notice that Lazarus never speaks in this parable? He never talks? He doesn't need to. God is his defense. The rich man talks, though, and he carries on this dialogue with Abraham, and his dialogue is both troubling and instructive. Let's, let's follow along with the rich man. Verse 24, the rich man asks for physical relief, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. What a sad picture this is for a number of reasons. 
First of all, notice that the rich man knows Lazarus' name. Which means he was familiar with the poor man. But sadly, it doesn't appear that the rich man has learned anything. It doesn't appear that he has recognized his foolishness. He's still self-focused. He's still self-consumed. Why do you say that? Because he wants Lazarus to show him the very thing that he refused to give Lazarus. He wants mercy. He hasn't learned anything. And on one level, we understand why the rich man is still thinking about himself. We understand why he's asking for relief. Because he's in agony, in the flames of judgment. Friends, again, we ought to be careful not to draw too many conclusions about the nature of the afterlife from this parable, because that's not Jesus' main point. But this is one conclusion that we can and ought to draw. Hell is real. And it's a place of conscious, eternal judgment. The rich man experiences the full weight of his sin. He's conscious of the agony that he endures. He is pleading for relief, even one drop of water, because hell is real. And it's a place of conscious torment. Tragically, however, the request is denied. Abraham who speaks with the divine perspective in this parable, denies the request for two reasons. The first reason has to do with the justice of God. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted, and you are in anguish. Now we need to be clear about something here. Some people mistakenly read verse 25 and conclude that there is a karma-like effect in God's economy. Every person gets a certain quantity of good things and a certain quantity of bad things. And if you get all of your good things in this life, then that means you're only going to get bad things in the next life. Some people mistakenly read verse 25 and think that. But friends... Nothing could be further from the biblical truth. God does not operate on karma. The point of verse 25 is that the rich man's life revealed the state of his heart. And so he's getting what he deserves. He did not steward his earthly possessions in a way that honored God. And that foolish failed stewardship pictures the man's spiritual condition. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus says in verse 13. For either you will hate the one and serve the other. And that's true of the rich man. He loved his wealth more than God. And his indifference to Lazarus reveals that sad reality. And so in verse 25, Abraham is reminding the rich man, God is just. You received from God in your earthly life, what He gave you, and you didn't steward it wisely. You didn't trust Him. You didn't honor Him. And so now in this next life, you're punished. Abraham is saying, your life demonstrated that you hated God. So God is doing you no wrong by punishing you in eternal torment forever. You have not trusted Him. You have not humbled yourself before Him. And now you're receiving the just penalty of your foolish life. The justice of God means that there's, there's, no, there's not even a drop of water for the man in anguish. The second reason for the, 
for Abraham's refusal is the nature of eternity. The justice of God and now the nature of eternity. Look again at verse 26. Abraham says, Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Jesus is not trying to give us a physical description of the setting for heaven and hell. Rather, Jesus' point is about the fixed nature of eternity. Once you die and stand before God, your position is sealed. Your place is certain and there's no change. Even if in the next life, those who experience God's judgment and come to their senses and see the folly of their lives, even if that happens in eternity, there's nothing that can be done. There's no repentance in hell that leads to life. Your standing, once you enter eternity, is fixed. Your position is certain. And that means, friends, that there's no bargaining with God. There's no negotiating table in eternity where you can bring your best deal and God can say, you know what, I think I like that. Let's go with your deal. That doesn't happen. And in that sense, the rich man is a fool. He lived only for his earthly life and now he's foolishly trying to bargain with God to better his position, but that can't be done. The only way that you can get ready for eternity is by responding to God today, right now, in the present. That's the only way to get ready. How do you do that? How do you respond to God? That sounds vague. Where do we go? What do we have to do? How do I do that? Well, the third mark in this text answers that question. Again, through the rich man's negative example, mark number three, it is foolish to ignore God's Word. It's foolish to ignore God's Word. In verse 27, the rich man shifts gears. If he can't get relief for himself, then perhaps he can spare his family. Notice the appeal he makes to Abraham, verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that He may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Apparently, the rich man's brothers were as foolish as he was, which is why he asks for a messenger to go and warn them. They need to repent. Warn them, Abraham. They need to repent. They need to respond to God, or else they're going to end up in torment as well. It's a noble request. Abraham, however, tells the rich man, that God's Word is enough. Notice verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Friends, that's not a cold-hearted statement from Abraham. That's just the truth. And it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable affirmation of the sufficiency of Scripture. That God's Word is enough to give people what they need. The rich man wants his brothers to be warned. Send them a message, he says. Warn them. And Abraham says, why would I need to send them a message? They already have the Bible. They have the Law and the Prophets. Whatever it is that they need to do, God's Word will lead them to do that. His Word is sufficient. So mark it down, friends. If you're only going to take away one thing from the sermon today, maybe you should take this away. Mark this down. Every healthy step in the Christian life begins with the Word of God. Every healthy step 
in the Christian life begins with the Word of God. If you need repentance, God's Word will lead you to repentance. If you need to be warned, God's Word will warn and spare you from the danger ahead. If you need faith or encouragement or healing or wisdom or insight, God's Word will give you what you need. The rich man says his brothers need help. And Abraham says they have the Bible. Listen to it. Listen to God's Word. Still, the rich man is not persuaded. He does not agree that God's Word is enough. The rich man does not agree that God's Word is enough. That should sound familiar to you because many people in our day think the same thing. And there's a whole sermon there that I'm not going to preach right now. The rich man doubts the sufficiency of Scripture. Notice his objection, verse 30. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The law and the prophets aren't good enough, the rich man cries. Moses and Isaiah, they're not powerful enough. They don't speak to all my brother's needs. They're not relevant in this contemporary age. People need something more than the Scriptures, Abraham. Don't you see that? The rich man even has a solution. He already knows right now. Send them a messenger from the dead. Send them a messenger from the dead. Surely, if someone rises from the dead and preaches to them, surely then my hard-hearted brothers would respond. The Word's not enough. Raise someone from the dead. Abraham says no. And his final refusal is the climax of the parable. What a powerful climax it is. Notice verse 31. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, friends, the issue for the rich man and for his brothers is not the need for a more powerful witness. It's not the need for a more relevant testimony. Moses and the prophets and the Psalms are more than enough to bring a sinner to repentance. That's not the issue. The issue is their hardness of heart. It's their hardness of heart. They reject Moses and the prophets because their hearts are dead in sin. And because they don't have eyes to see or ears to hear what Jesus says. And therefore, even if someone were to rise from the dead and preach the Word of God, even then, they would not believe Him. Of course, we know Jesus is talking about His own ministry at this point, isn't He? He's talking about the Pharisees and the religious leadership of Israel. And Jesus' point is powerful. If the Pharisees really believed the law, then they would believe Jesus' gospel. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is urged to enter into it. If they believed the law, they would believe the gospel. If they believed the prophets, they would respond to the kingdom of God coming in Jesus Christ. But as it is, that's not really the issue. The issue is not who's upholding the law For the Pharisees, the issue is their hardness of heart. The Pharisees refuse to humble themselves under the Word of God. They stubbornly reject everything that Jesus preaches. And therefore, it will not even matter when Jesus rises from the dead. It won't matter. Even then, they will make up lies and spread conspiracies to undermine 
undermine God's Word. Friends, this is the pinnacle of a foolish life that leads to hell. It's illustrated in the rich man and it's lived out in the Pharisees of Jesus' day. The pinnacle is this. Claiming to be wise, they ignore the Word of God to their own peril. So go back to that question I asked just a minute ago. How do you respond to God? Where do you go? What do you do? How do you respond to God? The answer, friends, is that you always respond to God through His Word. God always makes His people through His Word. And His Word is sufficient. When we humble ourselves to hear the Scripture, we find that God, through His Word, gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. Now, surely you're exaggerating, Jeff. It can't be everything that we need for life and godliness. Yes, it is. It's everything. How do you know that? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Everything you need for life and godliness, God gives you in His Word. When we submit ourselves to the authority of what God has said, then we find that this miracle of grace occurs where our natural hardness of heart is overcome and life begins to grow and flower where only foolishness once reigned. How do you respond to God? Through His Word. So if you're not a Christian this morning, if you are not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ's death to save you, if you're not a Christian, what this passage is telling you is that you ought to prepare for eternity today and you do so through the Word of God. The Bible is very clear. One day, you will stand before God. And mom and dad are not going to stand there with you. Just you. You will stand before God and you will face His verdict on your life. And once that day comes, your business with God is done. Your position is fixed. And that means today, friend, today is the day that you respond to Him. Today is the day that you get ready for eternity. Turn from sin. That's what the Bible calls repentance. Turn from sin. Own the fact that you have defied and hated God. Own the fact that you have not done what He said and you have done what He told you not to do. Own it. Confess that. Turn from that sin and confess that your trust is in Christ alone. Again, the Bible is very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the only blood powerful enough to cleanse you is the blood of Christ. If you're not a Christian, trust Christ today. Listen to me. There's no special way that you have to pray. There's no aisle for you to walk down. There's no pastor whose hand you've got to shake. There's no card you have to fill out. Simply and humbly, trust Christ. Own your sin and own the fact that the only person who's getting you into the presence of God is Jesus. That's how you become a Christian. Trust the Lord today, right now. God's Word is standing open before you, calling you to respond. It would be utter foolishness to ignore Him. Friends, if you are a Christian, that humble submission to the Bible cannot happen only on the first day that you begin to follow Jesus. It cannot only happen on that first day. 
It must happen every single day. I am alarmed. I am alarmed, both in my own life and in the lives of others, how easily we wander away from the Word of God. I don't mean confessionally, as though we're questioning that it's inerrant or inspired. I mean practically in how we live. I'm alarmed at how easily we wander away from God's Word. We are quick to confess that the Bible is authoritative, that it's true and that it is inerrant, but then we go on to live in a way that questions whether or not it's sufficient. We live as though we need something other than God's Word. And so, we need to constantly re-examine our hearts and our lives, even as believers, and we need to ask those questions. Do Do our lives testify that God's Word is both authoritative and sufficient? Does our testimony of how we live affirm that God's Word is both true and enough for all that we need? How do I do that, you ask? How do I show the world that God's Word is true and sufficient? That's a good question. I told you I was a simple pastor. Here's my simple answer. It begins by reading it. Read it. Read God's Word regularly and faithfully and take it in. It begins with reading it. It continues after reading it with obeying it. Doing what it says. Not perfectly, not performatively, but humbly lining your life up with the straight edge of Scripture. Read it. Obey it. And then it continues one step after that by upholding it in the life and ministry of a local church that is anchored in the Bible. Read it, obey it, uphold it in the context of a local church. Friends, the day is fast approaching when the line of orthodoxy for churches in our country is going to be made quite clear and it's going to be based on one question. Do they affirm everything that's in the Bible or not? Do they affirm everything in the Bible or not? So how do you live so the Bible is both true and sufficient in your testimony? Read it, obey it, and then anchor your life in a church that says, this is what God says and we're not going to move. And it's for your good. Where are you in that simple continuum? Read it, obey it, uphold it. Where are you in that process? Are you pursuing the Lord through His all-sufficient Word? Or are you more like the rich man who ignored God's Word to play with all his things to his eternal peril. Wherever you find yourself this morning, what I want to close with is reminding you that the grace of change can begin today, right now. The grace of change can begin today. Part of the good news of the Gospel is that God does not leave us as we are. Aren't you thankful for that? doesn't leave us as we are. We all come into the Christian life just like the rich man. We are all fools saved by grace. But praise God, the Lord doesn't leave us as fools. So, let's go to His Word every day. Let's reject this life of foolishness that ignores the Word of God. Let's pursue the wisdom that God has so richly given to us in Christ Jesus to His glory and for our good. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we do feel the weight of eternity as we consider passages like this. We ask You, Lord, that we would be sobered by that, that we would be corrected where we ought to be, and that we would, Father, be encouraged and infused with the strength of faith to devote our lives to knowing You through Your Word and making You known. Lord, help us to be a church that is humbly about the Scriptures. Help us, Father, to be humble enough to proclaim at the top of our lungs that all we need for life and godliness is given to us in the Word of God and particularly the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. Lord, we pray now as we prepare to come to Your table, Lord, what a evidence of grace that You have given us in this ordinance that we can remember regularly that our only hope before You is the body and blood of Christ And that hope is eternally secure. Help us now, Father, as we sing to prepare our hearts and minds to feast by faith on the gospel good news of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.